to start with, I wanted to tell you a little, uh, as always, I always have these. There's a story from when I was growing up. I had a, na- a neighbor, and his name was Mr. Frank. Um, at the moment, I cannot remember his last name, but he was Mr. Frank. I know that. Uh, he was an older gentleman, and he was one of those men who just never stopped. He was always working, always doing something. And in fact, one of the things I'll never forget about him is that he was, uh, I used to see him out in his garden when he was 90 years old. I remember that specifically because there was a birthday party um, and he was 90. And it wasn't a small like 10 by 10 garden. Like it was a huge, huge garden that he had. And I remember going over there and I would help weed his garden, which is why I don't like to have gardens anymore because I weeded this huge, huge garden. But, um, and I remember him teaching me how to pull peanuts and just really fond memories that I have of him. And one thing that always stuck out to me about Mr. Frank growing up, and I'm sure any young kid who has a guy like this in their life never forgets, but he was actually a veteran from World War II. And that's just something that made him seem like such a hero. And that didn't happen, and it didn't happen a lot, but I remember him talking about that every once in a while, and me and my dad would just be sitting in his living room, and he would tell us stories about what he went through. And I remember one day, and I remember that it was just completely random, but I remember Mr. Frank decided to give me a gift. And it wasn't wrapped or anything. In fact, he just handed me a manila folder. And he had this look on his face like it was something really cool, but when you're a kid, a folder doesn't seem awesome. But Inside of it was a memoir that he had written about his time in the war. And it, was, it wasn't crazy long, and it never got published or anything, but it was a fully fleshed out recounting of his time in the war. And it was so cool. It talked about how he met his wife right before he left, and it talked about his training and what his jobs were throughout the war. And I remember one of the stories um, told about how one time he accidentally made a mistake that ended up helping his platoon. So apparently one of his jobs was to scout ahead um, for his platoon. And this day he was riding along with his map, which was marked with a red pen showing his route for the day. I remember that was important. That was a detail that he made sure to tell us. And his mistake happened when he accidentally let go of the map and it flew away in the wind. And as he slowed to pick it up with the soldiers he was with, um, they saw enemies approaching and they were able to drive away and find a place to hide. And as they hid, they saw the enemies go past them and they watched as the enemies found the map that he had accidentally dropped. And watching their faces, they saw the enemies made a big commotion and started looking at the map. And at that point, Mr. Frank explained that he felt like he had made the biggest mistake he could right? The enemy, and I'm not telling a sad story here, so don't, don't get there, okay? But the enemies knew, he felt like the enemies knew exactly where the rest of his soldiers were, and only bad news could happen from that point. But instead, they watched as the enemy's faces started looking worried and scared, and suddenly all the enemy soldiers loaded up and turned around and went back the way they came. And the only thing that Mr. Frank and the soldiers with him could figure out is that they must have thought that the, the scout map was actually showing where a large group was heading and figured that their best option would be to avoid them. So either way, they never saw the enemy soldiers again, and they ended up having an easier next couple days because of a mistake that he made. And now I bring that up, not just because it's a cool story, but to bring up the fact that I remember this story today, even though I know the last time I read it was probably when I was in high school. Even though it's been, so 15 years or so, 
since I read it, I still remember it. The memoir that he wrote, the memoir that he accomplished, or sorry, the memoir that he wrote accomplished its goal. The point of a memoir is to write down a historical account of something so that others can know and remember what happened. And I still have that memoir somewhere. It's in a trailer that we have. And I honestly treasure it to this day because of what it means and how cool it is. And so all of that, I bring that up because today we're going to be looking at the Israelites and a memorial that they made for the exact same reason. They wanted to create something so that others would know and remember what happened on a historical day in their history. And so what's even greater than that story is that it points to the character of God and what that will remind us of. So now, if you will, please go ahead and turn with me. We're going to be in the book of Joshua, all right? Um, So we'll be taking a look at chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua. Uh, In the Pew Bible, I think it's page 209. So if you need to grab that, you can. Now, uh, don't worry. We're not going to read through two entire chapters of the Bible. They're long. We're not going to do that. But we will be taking a look at the big ideas of the story that are happening here. All right? So remember, last week, we started with the first chapter of Joshua. And we learned that we are starting a new section of life for the Israelites. Remember? Because their leader, Moses, had just died. He was the only leader that they knew for 40 years. And he was the servant of God. He was the only one they knew as their mediator between them and God. He had led them out of Egypt. He had parted the waters at the Red Sea. And he had called down manna from heaven when they were hungry. And now, all of a sudden, remember, he is gone. In his stead, God chose Joshua to take Moses' place. And last week, we saw that God informed the Israelites that the plan that he made was still on. God was still leading them into the promised land. God, uh, Moses dying did not mess up his plan. They were still on the right track. And so God commanded Joshua three separate times in those first nine verses to be strong and courageous. And this command of emotions, remember we talked about commanding your emotions, can be shocking. How are we supposed to follow a command on how to feel? How do we do that? And we saw God gives the answer to that question. God tells us we can feel this way because of one truth, that he is always with us. And that's going to stay with them throughout the entire book of Joshua. He said he will never leave or forsake them. He is with us wherever we go. And so just to catch you up, because we're not going to read through chapter 1 and 2, but the rest of chapter 1 saw Israel prepare an army. And chapter 2 recounted how Joshua sent two spies into um, the promised land and especially look at Jericho. And that tells the story of how Rahab helped save the two spies, and that'll come into play probably next week when we look at the Battle of Jericho. But the two spies came back and reported in chapter 2, verse 24, they said, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So Israel is now officially ready to move into the promised land. God has reassured them that he is still going to provide for them and protect them. And so the two spies have gone ahead and also reassured them that God has given the land into their hands. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to be, let's look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, 
As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went up before the people. So I'm going to pause. Let's pray real quick, and we'll keep going. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we can look at this word, and I pray that you would uh, be with me as I speak and that uh, just your words would flow. And I pray that you would help us to learn and gather as much as we can and just um, apply it to our lives this morning. And we love you so much. Amen. All right, so now before we dive into the text, I wanted to bring up an important part of studying the Old Testament, specifically narrative writings, so stories. When we're looking at stories in the Old Testament, sometimes it can be confusing as to what we're supposed to learn from these types of stories because there's no instructions for us to directly follow, right? So I think that's one of the reasons the New Testament is pretty popular by Paul and John and all the letters because we can take their instructions and directly apply them to our lives. That's really easy. We can look at them and know what we're supposed to do. But when we're looking at the Old Testament stories, there aren't instructions for us to follow. We can't prepare armies or cross rivers like they're told to. But what we do is look at the big picture of God and what their instructions or what their actions are actually pointing to, what truth or purpose is being pointed to. So we don't look at the details in the story and apply those to our lives. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But we look at what the details are focusing in on and what they can teach us about our walk with Christ. So that's how we approach this. That's what we're going to look at as we dive in. So as always in the Old Testament, there are a lot of things we can try to learn from and hone in on. So in this section that we're going to look at, I want to just bring up two things before we look at the next section. So the people set out to the Jordan River, and they lodged there for three days. And as soon as they see the Ark of the Covenant beginning to move toward the river, they're supposed to follow. But here we see that there's a special instruction to follow. They're supposed to be about 2,000 cubits between the ark and the people. That's a little over half a mile if you do the like, tran- uh, transition there. So some of us might know the stories about how the Ark of the Covenant was a holy uh, device and that if someone touches it, they would die. And so that's why they should leave distance between them. But they are told why they're doing this. It's not just to keep them safe from not touching it. It's not because getting close to it will be dangerous. Although it would still be, and it would still kill them if they touched it. But they're told to keep their distance so that they may know the way they should go. They needed the distance so that they could see where the ark was going. So they could have a clear view of the presence of God. And that makes sense, you know. Think about if there was a huge crowd around the ark, right? No one would be able to see where it was going or what was going on. So when I think about that, I immediately think of times at the state fair, if you've been there before. If you've ever been to the state fair, you know the crowds are huge. You can't tell what's going on anywhere except what's directly in front of you. So this instruction that they're given makes total sense in terms of why they're told to do it. They wait behind and let, they let the ark go out in front of them, in front of the crowd, so that they'll have a clear view of what's about to happen. For them, the ark goes where the Lord goes. That was the presence of God. 
So they're instructed to keep their eyes on that most important representation of God. In this moment, the Lord was finally going before them into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And so again, like I said earlier, we can't apply this instruction to our lives directly. We wouldn't, there's nowhere we can go to wait 2,000 cubits away from the church and see what God's doing. That's not what we're instructed to do. That's not how we apply the Old Testament to our lives. But that's not how things work for us in the new covenant. Christ came and died so that we have the Holy Spirit and we have direct access to God at all times for us to have the word in our hearts. So what do we learn from this to strengthen our walk with God? We look at what it represents in the big picture. They were told to stay back, to have a clear view and keep their eyes on God. And we too are told that we need to keep our eyes fixed on God, on our Savior. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, it says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are to run the race with perseverance, to live our lives with perseverance, the life that God wants us to live, the one that he's given us. And to do that, we are told that we have to fix our eyes on Christ, how he endured the cross, the shame, how he won the battle with death to end up sitting at the right hand of God. So for the Israelites, the Lord was going before them into Canaan. For us, Christ goes before us into death and through death into life. That's how we are supposed to learn. For us, Christ is what we are supposed to keep our eyes on. Just like the Israelites had to keep distance so they understood where God was going, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so next, Joshua told the people in verse 5 to consecrate themselves. For the next day, the Lord would do wonders among them. So this is another instruction that we can learn from. Generally, to consecrate yourself in the Old Testament, that would mean to give priority to spiritual things over physical things. Specifically, this would mean a separation from things that were unclean, especially anything that would contaminate your relationship with God. And so that encompassed clothing, diet, bathing, and all kinds of aspects of life. Joshua was telling them to get ready. God was about to do something amazing before them. But pay attention to the order of these things, right? So God was going to do something great amongst them, so they should make themselves clean. It was not the other way around. It wasn't make yourself clean so that God would do amazing things before them. Do you notice the difference? Consecrating themselves did not qualify them for the promises of God. Making themselves clean did not make themselves suddenly good enough for the things of God. Consecrating themselves was just the proper way to be in relationship with God. Again, in our perspective, we're not going to make ourselves suddenly clean enough from sin for the good things of God. However, consecrating ourselves is the proper way to be in relationship with God. Making ourselves clean from sin is how we live a life pleasing to God. It doesn't make us good enough. We can't be good enough. We are hopeless sinners, but we are still instructed to live in a way that reflects the light of Christ. Alistair Begg, a great preacher that I know a lot of people in here love. Some people just like to listen to his accent. Um, He's Irish? What is he? Scottish, yeah, yeah. So if you like that, listen to him. But when he was talking on this subject, he quoted a really popular hymn that many of us are probably familiar with, and it captures the heart of this so well. 
that song, it says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. We consecrate ourselves by offering up every part of our lives to be used for the mission of Christ. Everything we have, let it all flow in endless praise. And that doesn't qualify us to receive the good things of God. God has already promised that. But letting these things flow through us, letting, um, what is it, uh, what did it say? Letting our moments and our days, letting them just praise God, letting our hands and our feet do the work of God, that's just the proper relationship we're to have with him. And so moving back, let's look at what comes next. In uh, Joshua uh, 3, 10 through 13, it says, And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, all those people. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So, we're reaching the climax of the story. The big event is about to happen. From these verses, I want to point out that obeying God means having an adequate view of God's power. Joshua is telling the people, this action, the crossing of the river, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And I, I just love that phrase, the living God is among you. Living means active. The God who takes action is with you. I love that. Joshua doesn't view God as a passive being up in the sky, looking down at what they're going through. He is the living God. And there's logic in the assurance of power here. Joshua says God is in their midst. If he can get them across the river, then surely he can deliver them from their enemies, the Canaanites and the Hittites and all those people. If God can get you into the land, he can surely give you the land. And Paul uses the same argument in Romans chapter 8. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if God didn't hold back his own son for all of us, will he not give us everything else that we need? That's that logical argument that we can see there. The author Dale Ralph, sorry, Dale Ralph Davis put it this way, and I figured I couldn't word it any better, so I'm just going to read a quote. He said, The rescue at the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, and the death and resurrection of Christ are explosions of God's power that are meant to color the whole horizon of the believer's life in order to assure us that the God who so mightily handles great emergencies is surely adequate for the small cries and anxieties that beset us. If God can handle these huge, big things, he can surely handle the small things that are in our lives as well. If he can deliver in these huge emergencies, of course he can take care of the little things in our lives. And twice in those uh, verses that we read, 10 through 13, Joshua calls God the Lord of all the earth. And we have to fight off the tendency to limit God and our humanness and realize that God can handle all things. He's the Lord of all the earth. 
everything, every creature, every land, every tribe, every kingdom. He is Lord over it all. We have to stop limiting God. Sometimes we think, ah, this can't be changed. But God is Lord over everything. And so now we finally get to the moment. We look at Joshua. I know that's small, but we're still in Joshua 3. If you want to look at verses 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests uh, bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the times of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah the salt sea were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the people have kept their distance and they kept sight of the presence of God. They've consecrated themselves to be in the proper relationship with God through this occasion and they have set their minds on the greatness of the Lord. And God has now stopped the river to allow the people of Israel to cross over. We see the greatness of God's power fully on display. As soon as the priests who are carrying the ark enter the river, God stopped the waters completely so that the people could cross over. And not only did they cross, verse 17 says that the priests were standing on dry ground and the people walked on dry ground. The living God that Joshua referred to in verses 10 through 13 shows up in full force here. We get an exhibit declaring that there is no one more powerful than our God. And this is following through on the big plan that he's been set, uh, building up. They are obeying God and trusting in his word. And one fact that I want to point out is verse 15. Verse 15 feels like a complete, out-of-place sentence. It's got parentheses. It feels like it shouldn't be there. But it's really important. Here we see a parentheses that honestly interrupts the story we're going through a narrative, and suddenly we're interrupted with basically a weather update, right? However, this parenthetical statement shows a specific character of God, and it's a really cool one. See, if I was the one that promised to let people cross a river, I would personally pick a river that was low in water, like it was going to be a low year. There, we have some years like that around here, that it was shallow and narrow enough to cross in just like a step or two. However, we see here that God has taken the complete opposite route. He doesn't do it the way that I would do it or us humans would do it. He didn't look for a skinny stream that you can just step over, right? Verse 15 says, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So this means that most likely the river Israel faced was not a small stream over a few rocks, but it was likely a raging torrent. And it was probably, people have looked at it, it was probably a mile wide. So when God did lead Israel, when did God lead Israel through the Jordan? Exactly when it probably looked the most impossible. He didn't choose the easiest time. He chose when it was the most impossible. And this made it oh so very clear that this is in no way possible with man's ability. There's no way. If it was just a shallow, narrow river, the people could have crossed on their own according to just what they had. Uh, and they could just hold their belongings over their head and they could do it on their own. 
But no, this was a coursing river that would have been completely impossible to cross without divine intervention. And so we see that made super clear. We, and again, we see a clear parallel here between God's delivering of the Israelites and our deliverance. Because our salvation is the exact same case. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So God does things in such a clear way that it's only by his power, only by his grace. It's not from our works, and it's not because we consecrated ourselves good enough. But our salvation and the Israelites crossing the river are done in a way so that no one else can boast that it's not even a thought. It's only possible through God and his everlasting might. And that is the power that we have to look at. And so lastly, we come to what I believe is the most important thing that we can take away from the story of the Israelites crossing the river. So if you'll skip ahead to uh, Joshua 4, 1 through 3. It says, um, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then let's skip ahead. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Right there it says that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off so that these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So after the people have crossed the river, God gave them more instructions. He wasn't done yet. Twelve men, one from each tribe of Israel, was to go back to the riverbed and grab a stone. And they do this for a specific reason. They do it so that it will be a reminder as to what God has done. They build a memorial to mark the occasion of a great deliverance God brought them through that day. A deliverance that was only possible through the Lord of all the earth. They are to be prepared to answer their children when they ask, what are these stones all about? What are these for? Then, then they can answer them. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. A raging river was stopped and the whole nation was able to cross to the other side. And through this instruction, we can make a very strong assumption. We can learn something. And that is that the greatest enemy, oh, let me put it up. I want you to be able to fully get it. The greatest enemy against faithfulness is forgetfulness. I truly, truly believe that. The greatest enemy of faithfulness is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of obedience and staying in a life that is pleasing to God is forgetting. These instructions to build a memorial came from God. He spoke them to Joshua. God knew something needed to be done to mark the occasion. God knew then, just as he knows now, we have spiritual amnesia. Just like at the beginning of the 40 years, God had just delivered Israel, right? The Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. God demolished their enemies. But when they initially got to the promised land, it's like they had amnesia. They totally forgot how powerful God was and how he was taking care of them. They got scared of what lay before them. They got scared of the giants and what was going on in the land. And they forgot what God had just done for them. And God was making sure this didn't happen again. So here at the crossing, 
the crossing of the river, God instructed them to make a memorial so that they can remember this moment. And again, for us, we have to look at what does this mean for us? What does it mean in the big picture? So I'm not saying that you should go find 12 rocks in your yard and make a memorial. Although, if you wanted to, you could. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. It might would help you remember the mightiness of God. But what it does mean is that spiritual amnesia is real. The enemy of faithfulness is forgetfulness. We have to work at remembering that God has done for us. God has delivered us. And we have to not lose sight of that. The biggest gift God could have ever given us came in the form of Christ and his sacrifice that he made for us. And how often do we forget that importance? Are we still reveling in the fact years later after we have salvation, are we still reveling in the fact that he initially brought us out of our sin? Psalm 77:12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So one way that we can remember and memorialize what God has done is to think about those things, to have them on our minds. We have to ponder these things, roll them around in our head and not forget about them. Psalm 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So another way for us to remember is to thank God. When we pray, remembering to thank him with our whole heart. And I've mentioned this before, but one thing that Pastor Mark leads the deacons so well in is always reminding us to praise God for our salvation. Every time we meet, one of our praise points is recounting that God has delivered us from our sins every single time. And so another practical way that the New Testament church, us, that we battle forgetfulness is remembering the act of our Redeemer through the Lord's Supper. When we take communion, we are taking time out with each other to specifically recall what the body and blood of Christ means for us. We are following Jesus' command to remember what he's done. Even in the New Testament, Jesus knew we are forgetful. He gave us a way to remember these things. So just like the Israelites were being commanded to remember what God had done, we are being remembered to remember what Jesus had done. And even when we take communion, I love this. How often do we hear our children ask, hey, what does that mean? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Just like God instructed in the Old Testament, he said, do this so that when your children ask, you can tell how good God is. We are provided a moment to tell them, just like the Israelites were, about what God has done for us. In their moment, they're making sure that crossing the river didn't become some old story that gradually lost its importance. It was meant to keep this remarkable miracle fresh in their minds. Just as for us, communion is meant to fight back that gradual urge to look at the cross as a piece of furniture or jewelry that the throne of the shepherd who soaked up the wrath of God for the sins of his flock is to help us remember what a huge, huge moment, what a huge gift God delivered to us. And so as the last remark, I just want to quickly bring to your attention one last verse, and that's in chapter 4, verse 19. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Now, this seems like a completely random verse, and I'm not a date person, especially in the Bible. It is not my nature to remember things like this. But one really, just an interesting fact, is that 40 years earlier, we see in Exodus chapter 12, that on the tenth day of the first month, the Israelites were instructed to set apart 
the Passover lamb in Egypt. So this specific day, the, what is it, the 10th day of the first month, it was looked at as the mark of the beginning of redemption, and now that they've crossed the river, the same day has been used to mark the completion of God's promise. They had finally made it into the promised land. What God began, he brought to completion. And so I hope we can remember that today. I hope we can look at this story of obedience from the people of Israel and see the mighty work of God. I hope we can see that the promise of God promised a savior and that that too has been brought to completion. God promised us a savior and that's also done. Jesus fully took the wrath of God. It is finished, it is done. That word to die, that Greek word, it means so, so much. The wrath of God has been fully taken. It is completed already. Our future is secure in Christ. It is done. And so I hope and pray, lastly, that we learn from this story the importance of remembrance. Forgetfulness is truly the enemy of faithfulness. So let us continually take time to think and pray and praise God for all he has done for us through the Son of Jesus Christ. And as Michelle comes up, I just want that to be our focus. I hope that we can learn from the story. We can see the big picture that we need to remember, that we need to keep in our minds the important things that God has done for us. And what I mean by that is, yes, he does great things in our lives. He provides houses and jobs and he provides children and wives and husbands. And those are great things. But what I'm referring to when I say we need to remember what God has done for us is our salvation. That is the only important thing, not the, I'll reword that. That is just the most important thing that God's given us. We cannot let that just be in the back of our minds and live day to day without it. We have to keep that in our minds so that we know that we can uh, spread the hope of Christ, so that we can be the light in the world to people around us. We have to remember, we can't forget. It's so easy. We live day to day, we live busy lives, and we've got every day, I know I've got four or five things I've got to get done. I've got children to get here. I've got a meeting to get to there. And it's so easy to not even think about God. It's so easy to just do it and not have a purpose in it. But we're called, the Old Testament, this story is telling us we have to remember there's a purpose to what he has done for us. There's a purpose for it. And we have to remember that. So I I pray, I'm gonna pray for us. And I, I hope this encourages you all to Live your life this week so that other people can see God through you. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this story that you give us in the Old Testament. Thank you for delivering the Israelites through the river and through a river that was raging, that was huge, so that we understand only you could have made that possible. And God, we understand the same thing with our salvation. Only you could have made that possible. There's nothing we could have done. We couldn't have done anything to earn that. But God, you delivered that for us. And I pray that we have that in our hearts as we go throughout and live our lives with our family and friends and coworkers, that we would share that light with other people. And God, be with us this morning and help us to come back next week. And God, we just love you so much. Amen.